following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. How many of you have had, uh, at some point in your past, a fruit tree? Fruit tree? Can I see your hands? Fruit tree. Okay, only 15 of you. That's amazing that you're paying attention. You know, fruit trees are unbelievable because you can actually have one fruit tree produce different kinds of fruit. I don't know if you knew that, but one tree can produce plums and peaches and nectarines all on one tree. Did you know that? You can also have one that has lemons, oranges, and mandarins all on one tree through the art of grafting. One tree can produce different kind of fruit. And interesting enough, the same thing can happen with you. One Christian but different kinds of fruit can come out of your life. The Bible uses fruit as an x-ray, an x-ray to expose the heart of those who claim to know Christ, and those who produce fruit look like Christ, and those who don't produce fruit uh, don't look like Christ. And interesting enough, Christians produce fruit that does appear to be like Jesus Christ, and those who don't produce fruit are not Christians, even though they claim the name. And that's what Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount. Take a look at it in Matthew chapter 7, verse 16 on your outline. You will know them by their what? Their fruit. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their what? Their fruits. There's a biblical expectation that's found in the New Testament that if you are saved, you will produce Christ-like fruit. Others will see Christ through your sacrifices, through your service. They'll see Christ through your words and your general actions that can only really be produced by Jesus Christ living through you. And what's sweet about those single trees, those single fruit trees, with all kinds of different kind of fruit on them, that is what the Lord does in the life of a Christian. He produces all different kinds of fruit through one Christian. In our study of Second Peter, that's what we've learned and are learning. The apostle declares that if you're daily looking for the return of Jesus Christ, then it will result in some unique and very healthy fruit which will bloom and then come to maturity in your life. Things are going to change as you daily anticipate his second coming. I realize that uh, it's going to be maybe apples or oranges or cherries or peaches, and I know that you don't want to be fruity. But I do know that every one of us here desires to be more like Jesus Christ. Every genuine Christian wants to see more of Christ through us. So today, as you look at your Bibles and open them to 2 Peter chapter 3, hopefully you're there now, and you follow along in your outline, see if you can identify the fruit that God wants to produce in your life as you anticipate His return. Take a look at verses 14 and 15. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, one, be diligent to be found by him in peace. Two, 
spotless and blameless. And verse 15, and three, regard the patience of our Lord as what? Salvation. Peter talks about your core, your character, and your calling. Anticipating Christ's return is going to change every aspect of your life. It is that dramatic. And in addition to your life being focused on eternity that we looked at last week in verses 12 and 13, there are three additional fruitful changes that God wants to make in your life, verses 14 and 15. And so far, like a single tree, there are four produced fruits, different fruits, that Christians who long for the second coming will begin to show. One, we looked at last week, you're preoccupied with eternity over today. You're more preoccupied with our heavenly future than our earthly existence, and that's verses 12 and 13. And then today, number two, the core of your heart will grow to be at peace, even in the midst of a very crazy, hostile world. I took the moment this week to look at just the news and went, this is crazy, and then I stopped looking. It's crazy. And number three, the character, your character, will grow to be more uniquely holy, separate, and uniquely set apart for Christ. And then number four, your calling will increase with a passion to look for every opening in which to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the fruit that God wants to produce in your life that we're going to see in verses 14 and 15. Now, you know already, I hope, if you've been here, how important the second coming of Jesus Christ is. Uh, if you don't believe in the literal, physical return of the glorified Christ to planet Earth, then you are not a Christian. Only genuine Christians do, and all genuine Christians do believe that he's coming again. Again, we found out last week that Jesus' return is explicitly referred to 1,845 times in the Bible. Jesus' second coming is mentioned eight times more than his first coming. And believers are exhorted over 50 times to be ready for the second coming. So when we were looking and studying verse by verse here, verses 1 through 10 of 2 Peter chapter 3, we discovered that it is certain. Peter made a big point. It is certainly, no matter what the false teachers say, it is certain that Jesus Christ is coming. Now in verses 11 through 18, he says, look, if you're going to anticipate his coming, he is going to change the way you live. As you anticipate his coming, he's going to change your priorities, change your values, change your schedule, change what you spend, all kinds of stuff. And Peter begins the second half of chapter 3 with a summary statement, a very explosive statement in verse 11. Take a look at it, verse 11. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, which he just described in verse 10, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Peter is literally declaring a statement that if you anticipate and live waiting for the second coming of Jesus Christ, he's basically saying how astonishingly excellent you ought to be. It's a statement. You should live excellently. What sort of people ought you to be? And that sort there could be what kind or manner of people you ought to be. And that Greek word sort actually refers to foreigner. He means this world's not your home. You are and I are <laughs> a foreigner. We should be different. People should look at us like you're different, not weird, not odd. Different, unique. 
and God calls us to. Well, how should our uniqueness show itself? Well, he says there, verse 11, take a look at it, godliness and holiness. You see him there? Godliness and holiness. Holiness is that you're unique and you're separate. You're not like everybody else, and you're okay with that, that you're not like everybody else. Godliness is Christ-like and God-pleasing. So following then this incredible statement of verse 11, he now in verses 12 through 18 explains how that's going to be lived out. What fruit will you produce? How changed will you be? And what changes will be made in your life? Well, last week we found out, number one, living for eternity. You're going to start to long for eternity. Verses 12 and 13, take a look as I read it. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Looking means excited anticipation. Are you excited about the second coming of Christ? Are you excited for the return? Then notice it's not just looking for, but you see that word next to it? Hastening the coming, the day of God. Hastening means to hurry up. It's used six times in the New Testament. It means in Luke chapter 2, the first time, the shepherds came with haste. Number two, in Luke 19, Jesus told Zacharias, make haste and come down. And in the third usage, he made haste and came down. Acts 20, this is the fourth usage, and that Paul hastened to be at Jerusalem. And the fifth usage in Acts 22, the Lord told Paul to make haste to get out of Jerusalem. And now in number six, in verse 12 here, he basically saying, make haste. You know what that means? We as Christians want Jesus to hurry up. Anybody with me on that? You want him to hurry up. You say, is that a biblical desire? Yes, it is a biblical desire that you want Jesus to hurry up. See in verse 12, the coming of the day of God. What do we want to hurry? The coming of the day of God. This, this is after God destroys the entire universe. And now the day of God, he sets up a new heaven and a new earth. Can you say amen to hurry up, Lord? Amen. We can't wait. Uh, you're not looking forward to the judgment of your lost friends or family members, but you are looking forward to, and I am, with a hurry-up heart to the eternity with Christ in a totally new heaven and a totally new earth. At the day of God, our King promises to create a new universe, brand new, washed of sin completely. God will triumph over all who oppose Him. He'll eradicate sin and any remnants of sin, and our God will destroy death, the last enemy. Christ wins. Don't you love that? Christ wins. And the best part is the Greek word coming. Do you see it there in verse 12 and 13? It's the coming of the day of God in verse 12. It means presence. You can actually write that in your Bible, presence. It means the personal presence of Christ. We're looking for not a distant Savior. We're looking for being with our Savior to live with Christ face to face, up close and personal. As all believers will now exist, verse 13, in righteous perfection. You see that where righteousness dwells? It is righteous perfection. There is no remnant of sin at all. And it will be so mind-blowing, it will be so good, it will be so satisfying that you and I in the future will choose, we will choose not to recall this life. 
It's not that it's imposed upon us. We will choose to not remember it because our life in the future will be so incredible that this life will be like we won't even bother thinking about it. You say, where do you get that from? Isaiah chapter 65, verse 17. For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be what? Remembered or even come to mind. Not because it's washed out of us. It's because we have no desire to. No desire. And now as you anticipate Christ's coming and focus on the world to come, you're going to begin to value your future home more than your current home, your present home. And you will change how you live and change now because of Christ coming in the future. And what you value will change. And friends, you got to know this. It's not just going to be an attitude. Your very heart is going to change. What do you mean, Chris? I'm so glad you asked. Number two in your outline, living with sweet internal peace. Living with sweet internal peace diligently. Look at verse 14 and look what he says. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be what? Diligent to be found by him in peace. Peter's readers lived in a very hostile world. When Peter writes this, this was not a comfortable world. It was a world under terrible conditions, especially for Christians. There was way too much to fret over. There was way too much to worry over. And so Peter brings his readers back to the world, uh, from the world to come in verses 12 and 13. He, he, where, this is where, you know, in that world, uh, the, the world to come, is where God is all in all. He brings them back now to this world in verse 14 where Nero thought he was all in all and Rome could do whatever it wanted. It was a mad, bad, sad world, right? Filled with fears, tears, and spears. Took me a long time to come up with that. And Peter's talking to Christians here since he calls them, verse 14, look what, beloved. Do you see that there? He calls them beloved. And beloved is the same term that the father used of his son. This is my beloved son. A tender, intimate, affectionate term, which means you are very much loved. Listen, Peter reminds his readers when he says beloved, you are very much loved. And Peter's talking to believers, all who are very loved, which helps us understand what kind of peace Peter's actually describing here. He's really not describing the peace that comes with salvation, though that's a part of it. He's really talking about the peace which grows in your life in sanctification as a Christian. At salvation, Jesus says in John 14, 27, he gives you peace with God. Look what he says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. We have that peace with God. The war is over with our God. And in sanctification, he even refines it more. He reminds us that when we're filled with the Spirit, when we walk by the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit will be what? Peace. Peace. It will come with Spirit filling. And as we walk in the Spirit, and as Peter's talking to these beloved believers, this peace, this peace of heart is something that we can experience in Jesus Christ. We can. Peter adds, when, verse 14, believers are looking for these things. Do you see that they're looking for these things? What things? When you're in anticipation of the second coming, when you're more excited about the new earth than this old earth, when you can't wait to be forever face-to-face with Jesus Christ, 
Then verse 14, be diligent to be found by him in peace. When Peter says be found by him, he's telling the beloved to be in an ongoing condition of peace. The Lord Jesus Christ wants you, when he returns, to be at peace. He, when he arrives, your heart should already be at peace. That's something that our world knows nothing about, and we have every resource to live as people who live in peace. You say, wait a minute. To enjoy this internal peace, you and I have to be diligent? That doesn't make any sense. Uh, yeah, Peter actually commands you here. This is a command to be diligent. Peter actually commands you to live diligent, and that means press his readers to develop a diligence, a sharp desire, diligence, a, an impatient expectancy, diligence, a make every effort diligence to live in a continual condition of peace. Doesn't that sound crazy to you? I read that, I go, wait a minute. Peter's commanding beloved believers to try really hard to be peaceful? How does that work? It's like he's saying, start panicking to get a heart of peace. Or stress out to live in peace. What does he mean? Well, understand, when you read the Bible and you begin to look up the word peace, you'll find that the, the Bible tells us that we're to pursue peace. We're to pursue it. In the Old Testament and New Testament, let me give you two examples. Psalm 34, verse 14, it says, Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and what? Pursue it. 2 Timothy 2.22, you know it. Flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and pursue peace with those who call upon the name of the Lord from a pure heart. It still seems, though, a little contradictive to be fighting for peace. Peace of heart, aggressively striving for peace of heart until you realize what Peter is really saying. Peter is not saying work up peace. He's saying work towards those disciplines which result in peace. In other words, do whatever is necessary so you can cultivate a heart of peace. Diligently pursue those areas of the Christian life which will cause your heart to live in peace. Sometimes we spend our lives doing things that cause us to not live in peace. And he says, I want you to begin to do those things in your life that God has given you that will then cultivate a heart of peace. What are those disciplines? What causes peace? What results in peace? Well, there's a lot of things I could say, but the major one, the major ingredient of peace in your life, are you ready? Write it down, assurance of salvation. And you know it's true. When you're assured of your salvation, you function in peace. You'll not be anticipating Christ's return if you are uncertain you're a part of his family. I mean, you're not going to be excited going, well, I could be now judged and condemned forever. I mean, you're not going to be excited about that unless you know that you are part of his family. You must be convinced you're born again. You must be convinced you're forgiven of your sins. You must be convinced you're part of his special, unique, protected family to enjoy peace of heart and anticipate his coming. His coming. Well, how do you gain assurance which leads to peace? Well, write these verses down. They're not included in your outline. I want you to do a little bit of work today. 2 Corinthians 13.5. You know it. It says, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves? Now here's the test. Get it. Listen to it. 
that Jesus Christ is in you. That's the test, unless indeed you fail the test. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Write that down. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Brethren, be all the more diligent, there's diligence again, to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, the qualities he's just listed out here for you, you will never stumble. God says, you're assured of your salvation by examining your life for evidences of genuine spiritual life. Let me say it again. You're assured of your salvation by examining your life for evidences of genuine spiritual life. Assurance doesn't come from the church you attend. Assurance doesn't come from the family that you belong to. Assurance doesn't come from a decision that you made, even if it was an emotional decision you made a while back. Assurance doesn't come from a comfortable notion that you've got to be a Christian because you, you know some of the Bible, you really, really like Jesus, and you don't worship Buddha. That is not assurance of salvation. Assurance comes from evidence that Christ is in you and living through you by His Spirit. That is the path to peace. You may be secure, you may not be secure, but the way that you know that you're secure is assurance, and assurance is evidenced through your life. That assurance of salvation comes from, and write these things down. I'm going to give you about four things to write down. One, the direction of your life. The direction of your life. Assurance is not based on a decision once where you stepped into the salvation box. It's not. No true believers are, are assured by, I one time made a decision, I'm now in the box. That is not what the New Testament teaches. No true believers follow Christ. John chapter 10, verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they what? They follow me. They follow me. True believers follow Christ. They head towards Christ, not away from Christ. Write this down. The growth of your life. The growth of your life. As Peter said above in 2 Peter chapter 1.10, you're practicing these character qualities. You're living them out. You're growing. And then Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 is very specific. He says, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. If you're not growing in some manner, even a little, you are not God's true child. Listen, growth is very hard for us to perceive, and so it's over time, six months to a year. It is other people who see it more than we do, but understand, you're going to see it. Even a shriveled up grape somewhere under a leaf, you're going to see growth. You're going to see it. And then write down, if you would, the repentance of your life. The repentance of your life, the direction of your life, the growth of your life, the repentance of your life. To come to Christ, you repent of sin. And then to grow in Christ, you continue to repent of sin. But let me make this clear. Listen carefully. Repentance is not talking about sin. Repentance is turning from sin. It's not talking about sin. we got a whole generation of people that love to talk about their sin. Friends, that is not repentance. Repentance is turning from your sin. A mental choice that then is demonstrated by the character and direction of your life. Repentance is a part of what Christians are all about. And then, not only the direction of your life, the growth of your life, the repentance of your life, but write down the fruit of your life. Like we've been talking about, the fruit. 
the letter of 1 John instructs Christians to look for the fruit of right doctrine. You believe the right things. The fruit of love for God and love for others. That's where your life is consumed with Him and consumed with other believers and loving them the way God intended you to be. The fruit of endurance. You're faithful. You're consistent. Even though you sometimes fail, you want to follow Him and serve Him and you endure in that. And then the fruit of even obedience is talked about in 1 John. In fact, John is so pointed, he kind of slaps my face and your face when he writes 1 John 2, 4, the one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a what? A liar and the truth is not in him. Friends, peace comes from assurance. And assurance comes from genuine evidences of spiritual life. It comes from not a decision but a direction. It comes from growth, not just a gospel understanding. It comes from repentance from sin, not merely reasoning about your sin. And it comes from the fruit of your life and through your life and Christ's fruit through your life, not merely feelings in your life. There are some who are far more and too comfortable with a false view of assurance. You need to allow the scripture to bear on your life, and it may even shake you. It may even cause you to say, I've got to rethink this. I've got to make sure. What, what better way could I love you today than, than to make sure that you would make sure? What better way? I don't want you to go in doubting. I want you to go in certain. I want you to understand what God's word has to say. When a believer remains intimate with Christ, who lives in prayer, they live by the word. They live in dependency upon the spirit of God. They live in the community of the local church. They live daily anticipating Christ's coming. They will live with a settled peace. A settled peace. Which is what Paul commanded the Philippians in chapter 4, verse 6 and 7. You know this verse. It says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. God's peace banishes earthly worries. It deals with COVID fears. Be diligent to enjoy God's peace by walking dependently obedient to the Word of God by the Spirit of God. Do it. Understand, part of that peace will come from number three in your outline, Living for Christ-like purity. Living for Christ-like purity genuinely. Look at verse 14. It ends with two words, spotless and blameless. Spotless and blameless. These qualities that are in contrast to the false teachers, Peter called them not spotless but stains, not blameless but blemishes. To be spotless means to live without any mark or stain. Can any man here affirm to me, if you love a shirt, if you love pants, that somehow mustard's going to find its way on it? Are you with me on this? I don't know what it is. I, I, I get a favorite shirt, my pen opens up and totally wipes it out. I cannot live spotless. But spiritually, you can. Spiritually, you can. In fact, spotless has to do with character. You're going to write that down as character. It's how you live when no one's watching you. It's how you invest your time when you have a little extra time. It's how you behave when your parents are not around. That's spotless character. It's how you spend your money when you've paid all your bills. 
When you expect Christ to return at any moment, it changes the way you live when no one else is around. That's spotless. That's spotless. The word blameless means not open to censure or adverse criticism. Blameless describes your reputation. Now, spotless has to do with your character. Blameless has to do with your reputation. Do you have a reputation as a person who doesn't live in overt, defiant, ongoing sin? Blameless asks, when people think about you, do they think of you as someone who has got a blatant sin problem or a savior pursuit? Never referring to perfection, ever. Never referring to that. It means your life is headed toward Christ and he is your first love. You know what Christ loves, you know what Christ hates, and you seek to live that way even when no one's looking. That's what it means to be blameless. Are you at peace with God and with man because you're clean without spot before God and blameless before men? The Bible actually teaches you everywhere about living spotless and blameless, not just this passage. Uh, Let me highlight two verses, both Old and New Testament. Psalm 119, verse 1. How blessed are those whose way is what? Blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Look at Philippians 2.15. Prove yourselves to be what? Blameless and innocent children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. Are you seeking to live spotless and blameless? John MacArthur says there are some who are neither and others who publicly appear blameless but whose private lives are actually far from spotless. He goes on to say, like modern-day Pharisees, they work hard on looking good, but they fail to truly cultivate a heart of righteousness. Although outwardly they maintain an honorable reputation, they do so by hypocritically hiding their unrepentant sin, unquote. There are some who attend church whose lives are characterized by secret, ongoing, unrepentant sin. Sometimes it's not so secret. The Bible warns you, That if that's true of your life, that you have no assurance and you may not inherit eternal life. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 7, 23, you know it. You who practice lawlessness, that's a way of life. You're practicing lawlessness, sinfulness. I never knew you. I never knew you. But here Peter emphasizes that future accountability and heavenly reward and the gospel and living for God glory. But accountability, you're going to be accountable in the future. You're going to have a heavenly reward in the future will motivate you, young and old, to forsake sin and to obey God's word in your daily life. They'll be diligent. You'll be diligent to live for Christ, to live knowing you're accountable and you're rewarded. Look at these two verses, Romans chapter 14, verse 12. Look at it. Each one of us, he's talking to Christians here, will give an account of himself to God. Each one of you will. 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that, what's the next two words? Each one of you may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he's done, whether good or bad. So I'm going to have Chris Hunter stand up here. Chris, come on, stand up. I'm calling him out right now. Here he is. Welcome, Chris Hunter. Here he is. He's a great guy. As I stand here, I'm going to ask you, what deeds have you done for the glory of God and in the power of the Spirit that you're going to give before Jesus Christ? Understand that he knows every motive and every word of your life. Are you ready? Give me an answer. Go ahead, sit down. All right. You say, why would I do that? Because, friends, that's what's going to happen to you. You're going to stand, each one, before Jesus Christ and give an account for your life. The the only difference will be is that it's before Christ, which means two things. It's going to be much more fearful. And number two, number two, it'll be much more loving, much more righteous, much more true. 
It'll be gracious. Not the way I did it to Chris. Poor Chris. <laughs> Understand, my family, that is why you seek to live pure. Because you're going to give an answer. You're going to. John, uh, the apostle, says it this way in 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are now children of God, and it has not yet appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we'll be like him, because we'll see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Peter called it spotless and blameless. Now, you cannot live spotless and blameless unless you're saved. You cannot live spotless and blameless unless you're filled with the Spirit. You cannot live spot, spotless and blameless unless you live according to the word of God. You can't, but you can make progress. You can. And Peter's teaching, if you're expecting Christ to return, you're going to live more holy. You are. You're going to live more holy. And then finally, the fourth fruit on your tree, number four for this morning, living for faithful gospel proclamation evangelistically. Living for faithful gospel proclamation without question Peter wanted his churches in Asia that he's writing here in 2 Peter to wait eagerly for Christ's return. At the same time as they're waiting eagerly, he does not want them to grow idle. Get this now. He doesn't want them to grow idle, and he doesn't want them to be isolated from people. No, you all have spiritual responsibilities in this world you are to be in this world, but not of this world, but in this world, not idle, not isolated. And you have time right now to accomplish his mission to call his chosen children to respond to the gospel. God's judgment has not yet come. Amen? The, the ultimate one. His wrath has not been poured out yet. There is still time to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Look what he says in verse 15. And regard, look at it, and regard the patience of our Lord as what? Regarded as what? What's it say? As salvation. Consider Christ's delay in returning as an opportunity to proclaim the message of salvation to all. The gospel. When you live each day waiting for Christ to return and live each day knowing that the Lord delays only because he's patiently waiting for his chosen to come to salvation, then he says, regard this, Peter's saying, that regard there is a command. So he's commanding them, those churches, and now you today, to act upon yourselves as a middle voice. So you choose to do this. This is your calling. This is not somebody else does to you. And that word regard means to consider, to think, to believe that our Lord's patience is meant for the salvation of his chosen ones. The Lord will not come back until everyone who he has chosen is saved. It's not coming back until they're all saved. So would you please, again, Hurry up. Because we're hurriedly waiting. And we want to go. Verse 15 here, of course, is connected to verse 9. Remember that sweet verse? Look at verse 9 of this same chapter. The Lord is not slow about his, what? His promise, as some count slowness. But he is, again, patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance for his own to come to repentance not only should you be joyful the lord was patient and waited for you to be born and then born again but you should rejoice that christ is daily adding to his family through the gospel until his family is complete as you daily expect christ to return you're going to have increasingly opportunities for you to call lost men and women to be reconciled to god to turn from their sins and repentance to trust in his person and his work on the cross by faith 
and by grace alone and Christ alone and faith alone. And that opportunity is only right now. It's only right now. While God is still exercising his patience. Is his patience going to last forever, yes or no? It is not. And therefore, when you expect his return, when you think it's going to be this last day, you're going to be a little bit more anxious to be sharing with those you love who are without Christ and knowing that they'll have little or no opportunity to hear about Christ or embrace the gospel message after we're gone, and therefore that Christ took the punishment that they deserve for their sin on the cross. He rose from the den, again, from the dead to offer a new life now and eternal life forever. As you live each day anticipating his return and embrace your coming joy in his presence, you also embrace something else. When you really believe that you're going to be in the presence of Christ in a new heaven and new earth, you must also believe that there will be millions in torment for all eternity. Those who are not yet his family, and it will cause you to act on your present spiritual responsibility to seek to share the gospel with them. If you strive and live in the reality of Christ's soon return, you will share the gospel with the lost. And when you live in peace before them, you'll be attractive. And when you live spotless and blameless, you'll be unique. You'll have a platform in which to speak. So he says, verse 15, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. As God remains patient during the season of mercy, buy up every opportunity to explain the only way of salvation. The Lord only delays his return in order to save the rem remainder of his elect. Um, how many of you have missed a gospel opportunity? Can I see your hand? Yeah, you know, I, I was just in Hawaii. I was talking to this guy. He knew the joint chief of staffs. So I'm sitting at the beach, and, and he ba basically asked who I was. I said, I'm a pastor, but don't hold it against me. And immediately he goes, oh, you know, the best thing I can say is Jesus is a good guy. And he got up and walked away. And I, and I was just about to tell him, he's not a good guy. He's the Lord you're going to bow to. And I, I missed my shot because he left. He didn't want to talk to the Christian guy. You know, we all face those missed opportunities, do we not? But there should be something in our heart that says, I want to buy that up. I want to work at that. I want to make sure I speak the truth so they hear about Christ. Can I hear an amen to that? That's part of where our heart's at. Understand, the Lord is waiting for his chosen family to have time to come salvation. And the great thing about our Lord is he's like the father and the prodigal son. Your God responds to repentant sinners with massive mercy, incredible, lavish grace. He's joyous. He's gracious to those who come by faith. There is, Luke 15, an actual heavenly celebration and rejoicing when any sinner comes to repentance. Amen? It is his favor. It is joy. He wants to hear the truth. So who is it that the Lord is moving you right now that you're going to say, I'm going to make that extra effort, extra prayer to make sure that I share with him or with her? So let's take this home. Letter A, embrace the tension of fruitful living. Embrace the tension of fruitful living. Philippians chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. Work out your salvation, fear, trembling. And then he says, for God is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. There are two extremes to avoid in life. 
And that is, one is the attitude that you're so locked into God's sovereign plan that, that basically in such a way that nothing you do will make any difference. And I know sometimes Christians trip into that and they begin to dismiss their responsibility. At the same time, the other extreme is to think that God can't get anything done unless you do it. And while God's sovereignty must never become an excuse for laziness or inactivity, on your part, you must also, your efforts, your plans, your activities, your struggles to try to accomplish his will must never take his place as the sovereign Lord. Two tensions. Listen, the way that Paul balanced his responsibility to fruitful living is found in Colossians chapter 1, verse 29. Look at it. I labor, striving according to what? His power. I'm putting forth effort, but I know it's only his power which mightily works within me. In the same way in evangelism, I share, God saves. I labor, God accomplishes for his glory as I depend on him. Embrace the tension and understand you are fully responsible and God is absolutely sovereign. Can I hear an amen to that? You are responsible, but God is sovereign. You say, I can't resolve that in my head. Good, now you got it. You got it. It stays attention and leave it there. Letter B, pursue the fruit most needed. Pursue the fruit most needed. I'm confident that every one of you who knows Christ wants to grow more to be like Christ. You want to grow in anticipation of his return. In fact, the fruit of that anticipation varies from saint to saint. But today, the Spirit of God, I believe, grabbed your heart. He grabbed your heart in one area. One of the points, one, two, three, or four, doesn't matter which one. More than any other. And only you know, only you know what the Spirit of God said to your own heart. It could be eternity. It could be a peace-saturated heart. It could be the pursuit of purity and holiness. It could be a growing passion to proclaim the gospel to lost family, friends, and strangers. Whatever it is, the fruit of the Spirit that is most emphasized in your heart is the one you should fertilize. Well, you say, what do you mean? Memorize the Scripture. Pray about that one area. Share with a friend or a disciple you desire to see that particular fruit more manifested in and through your life for God's glory. Don't just see this as a sermon that you file away. See it as a launching pad. See it as marching orders for you to respond to the Spirit of God and respond in obedience to the area that He highlighted in your life. There is one way to grow more like Christ, and one of those ways is to respond to the Spirit's proddings to obey His Word. Go after that area more than any other. And let her see, would you thank Christ for this season of mercy? This season of mercy, this time today, today, right now, before Christ's return, it, it's not only for salvation. Listen, friends, it's for reward. Uh, this is our opportunity to give to the one who gave us everything. This is our opportunity to serve the one who came as the perfect servant. This is our window to produce Christ-like fruit, which will last for all eternity. This is, right now, today, our opening to share the gospel message to those who are lost. This is your moment to turn to Christ in repentance and to trust Him by faith. Would you like a tree? Would you examine your own life for what kind of fruit you've got? Would you take a serious look? Is it spirit or is it flesh? Is it righteous or is it religious? fruit is it fruit or is it fakery is it repentance or is it just reasoning is it spiritual growth or is it just sort of a church understanding the most important question is christ 
in you unless you do fail the test. All genuine born-again Christians are not only have their sin covered, I mean, judged on, on Christ's cross, but then they're covered in His righteousness, and then He's transformed them internally and dwelt with His Holy Spirit, giving you a new nature, causing you to want to follow Christ, allowing you to obey His Word, which then causes you to produce Christ-like fruit. Is Christ in you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you for the truths that we've come out of this passage. Thank you for the exciting anticipation, the hurried anticipation of your coming. Father, if there are any here who don't know you, would you begin that process of cracking through their hard heart and awakening it? Would you, would you break through as you broke through my head full of rocks and my heart of stone? And would you give me that and give those here a heart of flesh and, and a mind that can understand their desperate need for a Savior. That their sin separates them from you. And we pray, Father, that you would be glorified as a result. And that we would respond to your word with, with active, willful obedience that's dependent upon your spirit so you're glorified in all that we do. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs> Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast, and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.